0: Hi, friends, and welcome to another very special episode of the End of Sport podcast. This is our second in our End of Sport or EOS panel series. Uh, And today, the conversation is a conversation with um, four current and former college athletes about both the shifting landscape in college sport, of course, and also their vision for how college sport can be changed and improved to better the experiences of college athletes. Um, So we're incredibly excited to share that with you. That's gonna be a conversation moderated by Johanna, who is joining me now. Hi, Johanna. Hi, everyone. Uh, And Derek, uh, who you will hear from uh, at at length later. I unfortunately was not able to join that conversation, um, but I do wanna talk a little bit now about a related issue before we plunge into it. Uh, And that issue is something that you may or may not be familiar with. Um, A new California Senate Bill 1401 named College Athlete Race and Gender Equity Act. Now, SB 1401 actually sounds really terrific on the surface. Per LA Times reporting, um, this bill would require California schools to share 50% of annual revenues in football and men's and women's basketball with the athletes, initiating a new era of pay for play. Um, What That sounds terrific on the surface. Uh, Obviously what we've been talking about uh, on this show at great length is the ways in which name, image and likeness liberalization doesn't address the fundamental form of exploitation in college sport, which is the fact that universities are um, reaping huge amounts of revenue based on the unpaid labor of college players. So if college players receive 50% of the revenues that they're producing, right, that would seem to go a long way toward remedying the the fundamental exploitation at the heart of college sport. Uh, And actually 50% is a fairly reasonable number given the kinds of collective agreements we see in um, professional leagues, right? So that's where that 50% number would come from. So again, on the surface, this seems like a huge victory, but we've got to read the fine print here. Because when you read the fine print, there are some really disturbing elements to this legislation. And those disturbing elements, I think, are particularly disturbing because you've got to remember, this is not a collective agreement being negotiated by college athletes with the universities they are working for. In that kind of collective bargaining process, you are going to see compromises and you're going to see, uh, you know, deals reached that don't address every aspect of exploitation that exists that don't create kind of like a, an ideal world scenario. But at least through collective bargaining, what you know is that the people who are being directly impacted, right? The people who have to lived with the working conditions and the collective agreement are the people who are negotiating it, right? They're making a choice for themselves. They're voting for it as a union membership. That is absolutely, of course, not what we are seeing here. And actually the fine print in this SB 1401, to me, is the the ultimate argument for why we need to see um, organizing in college sport so that athletes actually get a voice because any kind of paternalistic model is going to stick them with working conditions and compensation that isn't as just as it needs to be. So let's look at that fine print. It says in the LA Times for Peace, schools would establish a degree completion fund for each athlete and the contents of the fund Fund, excuse me, fed annually would be made available soon after degree completion within six years. If the athlete does not graduate within six years, he or she will forfeit the fund and it will go back into the athletic budget. Players would only have immediate access to a maximum of $25,000 each year, while the rest would build over time. So immediately, right? This is a huge flashing red warning light because we're talking about a situation here first of all like just the the fundamental paternalism to say that college students don't have the mental acuity to manage money that they are currently earning right people who are between 18 and, and you know 24 years old or whatever it is primarily um aren't being entrusted with the ability to manage their own money so that that's fundamentally problematic in its own right but much worse than that is the fact that players are required to graduate in order to, to receive the wages that they have actually already earned. They've earned the wages through their labor on the athletic surface, and yet they won't receive the wages unless they graduate. And yet, as we have chronicled at great length in this show, there are myriad barriers to graduation for college athletes. And simply claiming that they must graduate in order to receive access to the wages doesn't in any way, shape or form, address those forms, those those barriers, those structural obstacles to achieving academic success. And frankly, what this also does is it incentivizes for universities that players won't achieve that academic success. because if players don't graduate, then they don't have to pay players, and it goes mm-hmm. right back into that athletic department budget. Um, so I mean, that's that's frankly a travesty. and we gotta add on top of that, that there's also a provision in this legislation that says that if players transfer, out of California, because remember, this is a California bill, if players transfer out of California, they forfeit, they forfeit access to all of the money that they have earned in their fund. So that's yet another lever of coercion that universities can employ to keep players under um, less than desirable working conditions. Mm -hmm. Uh, So Johanna, I don't know if you have any thoughts you want to add, but to me, like there are a lot of ways in which this bill is really kind of corrupting the idea of what pay-for-play should look like.
1: Yeah, I mean, I have have a couple thoughts. I mean, one I just want to say is that as when listeners listen to the episode, like this is exact, I mean, we didn't know about this legislation. We didn't talk about it, but it makes all the more striking because we didn't talk about it, how the athletes, especially towards the end of the conversation, um, talk about the need for athletes to have a voice and they talk about the limits of SAC. Um, I think the Student Athlete Council, I actually don't remember what it it stands for, right, but kind of the limitations, the the limited power that athletes have access to and how they they have no voice when it comes to these decisions. And so, right, and so as you're pointing out, Nathan, like the fact that like athletes are not part of this decision making process for this legislation, right, that's an, an enormous red flag um so so definitely listen on because again even though this legislation was not out yet or we didn't know about it right this is still something that athletes are talking about and coming up with on their own the second thing is that the whole um stipulation about how um college athletes are not allowed to transfer and they must stay in california like that i mean there's so many awful things about this but this is so restricting and it essentially like imprisons athletes within california and in so many ways is very similar to other very coercive um higher ed practices for example a lot of you know schools in the south have these like like florida has like a bright futures program it has these scholarship programs that offer really significant scholarships for students to go to schools in Florida, and the purpose is to essentially trap them in Florida. Yes, it can provide them with a good, like a good affordable education, but it traps them within the state. Um, Florida doesn't have that many. Um, they has a lot of very good universities, but doesn't have you know tons of like top rated universities the way other students have. Um, it also reminds me um, when we think about. Um, how if we kind of think internationally, we think about countries that provide really good scholarships or cover the funding for students to go to college, which on the surface sounds great. A government covering, you know, paying for students to go to college, paying for students to get education sounds great. And some countries such as Turkey will give money to interne- to, to their students to study internationally as long as they return to Turkey and work for a certain amount of time within the, within the state. And I believe within certain occupations, right? So this whole idea of like, We'll give you something, but we are going to provide so many stipulations that really, really limit your potential, the limit that you want to do with that. And, and and this is in California, right? A state that is supposedly very kind of like left-leaning and liberal and all these things, which again, kind of points to how we need to break down some of these binaries, so kind of like our, you know, uh, Southern states are this, California is that, right? And I think this legislation shows that it, if we cut through all the BS, that we find out how limiting and how restricting it is, that it is actually going to be imprisoning athletes to stay in California Um, yeah so those are the the two main points I wanted to say
0: absolutely this is a new form of indentureship essentially Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. and it's unacceptable if we're trying to think about progressive approaches to how to uh, 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 at most I guess reform college sport but certainly this is the furthest thing from a revolution to the to the model
1: um, you, so especially that- just Sorry, one last thing, especially because the title of this is like racial and gender equity. I can't remember the exact title, right? So like mm-hmm. they even put yep. these like words that people are looking out for, right? To give it yep. a catchy title to essentially hoodwink people. It's a switch and bait, uh, bait and switch right, this whole idea that they're trying to kind of trick people into believing that what, right. ha- what they have is is a good piece of legislation and then they're not going to read those fine details. So again, um, thankful that this was written about in the LA Times. Um, and obviously like I'm glad Nathan that we talked about this because I think it's something people need to read the fine print because it's a completely different ball game than what the legislation um, wants to present to us.
0: Exactly. Okay, well, with all that said, we want to throw it now to uh, a terrific conversation with four really of our favorite current and former college athletes, uh, Kaya McCullough, Colin Anderson, Sophie Camaracino, and Andrew Cooper. Enjoy. (laughs)
2: back to another episode of the end of sport podcast we have a really really great episode um, another kind of panel discussion if you will or another uh, discussion informal chat um, on uh, the topic of collegiate athletics but from the perspective of uh, former college athletes um, which often in the discussion that we see in in mainstream sports media tend to in, in many ways get left out of the conversations that are having in favor of um, some of the overseers the coaches the athletic directors and um, university leaders as well as um, folks in the the college sport media industrial complex so we're really excited for this discussion we have four brilliant folks um, who've agreed to to chat about all things college athletics and and their experience so i'm just gonna first go through and introduce our brilliant Um, uh, panelists or or, um, guests on the show Um, it starts with kaya mccullough and folks will um, remember that kaya is a return um, guest on the end of sport and uh, kaya is a former ucla and washington spirit uh, soccer player chairwoman of the anti-racist soccer club and athlete athlete ally ambassador and longtime listeners will certainly know who kaya is both from the show and from uh, a brilliant Twitter profile. Uh, Kaya, it's a great pleasure to have you back on the show. Colin Anderson is a former uh, linebacker for Vanderbilt University. And Colin, we are very excited to have you uh, on the show for the first time. Sophie Carmozino is a rower at Indiana University. And it's great to have you on the show. And last but certainly not least, Andrew Cooper is a former track athlete at Cal Berkeley and lead organizer of hashtag WeAreUnited, and co-founder of uh, United College Athlete Advocates. So, welcome all of you to the show. So, there's obviously been a huge, huge, uh, a, a tremendous amount of discussion of late in the world of college sport, and how dynamics are supposedly changing to some degree. The Supreme Court and the NLRB, or the National Labor Relations Board, have essentially acknowledged that the principle of amateurism is a complete fiction, and is a fiction designed to, in our view, obfuscate and justify the fundamentally exploitative nature of athletics in the U.S. university system. Compensation for name-image likeness, long prohibited by the NCAA, has become permissible in the last year, leading to Um, Something very clearly, a moral panic against perceived pay-for-play. Amidst all of the noise, part of the reason that we asked you all here today is to get your insights as former, uh, recent or former college athletes um, uh, about these changes and to explore how you would change college sport if you could. But before we get into those sort of bigger questions, Could each of you um, just kind of tell us a little bit about yourselves? Um, I think that's really important. Um, Sort of where you played college, your sport, and how much sport played a role in your college experience. And what we're kind of really interested in here is, in particular, how much time and labor, etc., that you devoted to athletics while also doing all of the you know, norm, quote-unquote normal student stuff uh, and the work to graduate. So, Kaya, I'd like to start with you on this question. Can you tell us a little bit about your experience in, in college as a college athlete?
3: Hi, yeah, of course. Thanks for having me back on. Super excited to be here. Um, hi, everybody. My name is Kaya McCullough. I am a former soccer player at UCLA, best university in the world. Just kidding. Yeah. Um, And yeah, I spent a lot of time playing soccer while I was a college athlete at UCLA, definitely was maxing out my 40 hour maximum hours, if not exceeding them. Um, And then additionally, I was on campus every summer from the time I was a freshman to the time I was a senior to train and get fit before our August start date and, um, you know soccer is a fall sport but we also had a spring season so it definitely was a year-round sport for me as a college athlete at ucla Mm
4: -hmm.
2: and colin i'd like to get your take on this as well
4: hi yeah derek um great to be here first podcast ever for me um (laughs) but Welcome, uh, welcome oh yeah 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 um So I was um, a scholarship athlete on the Vanderbilt University football team. So uh, SEC, all about that. Um, And yeah, I guess from um, a student athlete perspective, sport definitely plays a very large part of your college experience. Um, I (laughs) definitely, um, you know, uh, as a SEC football player, only having two months off of the year. So every other month, 10 months out of the year usually if not more if you go to a bowl game uh was spent living and breathing football so Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah happy to be here
2: great and uh sophie
5: yeah hi thank you so much for having me this is also my first podcast
2: Uh, (laughs) um welcome to you as well
5: thank you i'm it's sophie carmesino so that was pretty good um and Thank you.
2: I, I'm sorry. I, I really butchered that, to be honest. Really, really no, butchered No, it's that.
5: okay. We have, like, four Sophies on my team, so everyone calls me Carmo, so that can work, too. Um, great. But, yeah, so I'm a current rower at Indiana University um, in the Big Ten and fresh off of our Big Ten Championship regatta, which was yesterday. And we're waiting to hear if we'll go to NCAA, so I'm very much in the midst of it right now. mm mm-hmm. uh, But I think my story is interesting because I never intended for athletics to be such a central part of my life in college. I am originally from Indianapolis area, but I went to Colgate University out in New York, um, not playing any sports. I had swam in high school, but I was ready for the NARP life in college. And halfway through my freshman year, I walked on Colgate's rowing team and When I decided I needed to leave Colgate for financial reasons, uh, rowing is what brought me to IU. I loved their program. So I came to IU for rowing, and now it is everything in my life. Like, I devote just as much time to it as everybody else on this panel has and every other college athlete in the country has. Um, And all of my extracurriculars revolve around rowing and athletics, uh, SAC, And our like Excellence Academy program I'm involved in, my internship is in the athletic department, and it's just something that has taken over my life, both doing my sport and things adjacent to my sport that I never would have anticipated just like three years ago.
2: Yeah, wow. Yeah, we're gonna, I think we're gonna get into questions of workload and, and, and how much you're all doing, because I know that um, either a current or, or former athlete just doing so much while um, playing and, and also trying to be successful in the classroom as well. Um, Andrew, getting a, I'd like to get your response
5: in this question as well. Of course, thanks so much for having me.
6: Uh, It's great to be here with these incredible athletes. Um, My name's Andrew Cooper. I ran track and cross country at Washington State University and Cal Berkeley, um, and was SAC president at both schools and deeply involved in mental health advocacy with the Holinsky's Hope Foundation um, through SAC. And then in that mental health advocacy, became more and more involved in activism, in realizing that the system would never fix itself and was deeply involved in the We Are United movement as an advisor and organizer. But my time, uh, I tell folks that, you know, the Pac-12 yeah. did a study a couple of years ago that found we spent an average of 50 hours a week on our sport. Um, when you take everything... Um, between, you know, prehab, rehab, time on planes and hotels. Um, that's what it averages out to because essentially every moment of my life that was not spent studying, I was wow, training 50 to hours be a week—that uh, I mean, I, I, I guess it's runner. not
1: surprising, um, but, but still just like the numbers and getting the data on that. Um, and actually that's a really great entry point to the next question, Um, is that you know? now that we sort of have everyone's background and everyone's foundation and kind of their sport, but also kind of how much time and effort they devoted to it, we were wondering if each of you, uh, going in the same order, if you could walk us through how and why you developed a critical perspective on college sport. So let's start again with Kaya.
3: Yeah, this is an interesting question just because every time I'm made to reflect about my journey and how I've gone to where I am it it sort of comes back to college and Mm -hmm. as some of you may know I really contribute my activism starting back in college and when I decided to kneel for the national anthem in protest of police brutality and from there I think my activism sort of spiraled and it sort of felt like All these things were compounding on me all at once I think once my eyes were opened up to activism and a lot of the harm that was happening to my community as a black woman I think that intersected with seeing the harm that was also simultaneously happening happening to black athletes in particular within the NCAA system so I think You know, I can trace my critical perspective back to my own activism and my own experience as a black woman and my experience in protesting police brutality specifically. Um, And I think, you know, once you sort of get an itch and once you sort of get an inkling about some of the wrongs that are happening in the current college sports system, you start going down the rabbit hole. And I think for me, that was a completely accurate description of my you know development of a critical perspective so i I really contribute back to my activism and i think just seeing a lot of the horrors around me and connecting with athletes like andrew and people who were also experiencing some crazy (laughs) crazy things in the college sports system um, it's hard not to get a critical perspective of the system
1: Absolutely. And there's a reason why people find education to be dangerous, right? Because an education doesn't always do this for people, but right, it can really open up people's eyes to what's going on, help them make connections across time and space. Um, What about you, Colin? (laughs) Oh,
4: yeah. Yeah, I totally agree with um, her sentiment or statements, basically, that being a college athlete, you kind of, I mean, we literally just got done talking about the amount of hours we put in. Being around something for so long, you know you get out of the honeymoon phase, which I would almost call high school <laughs> if you were playing your given wow. sport in high school. I mean, it's a completely different sport, a uh, completely different culture around it, um or at least less um, it's less complicated culture. um you just get you know your usual dad politics in high school sports <laughs> usually um, but yeah, uh, in terms of the question of um, how are I developed a critical perspective on college sport um, yeah i mean just being around it um like i said earlier and seeing everything that happens actually living in it um and i think it's it's funny because going back to high school that i was mentioning it's very easy and it's kind of widespread the whole idea of you know student athletes getting paid um that's very that's a very common english high school paper (laughs) that a lot of people think about but um you know, those are kind of more of the softball topics, and I think they kind of distract from other issues, like we've mentioned already, of mental health. Um, mm-hmm. You know, being the superstar student athlete doesn't mean you're happy. <laughs> Making a fantastic, yeah. you know, it might make you happy in the short term, but it doesn't necessarily dictate how you're going to be end up. Um, you know, uh, thirty years down the line. So just just being around it, I'd say.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And Sophie, what are your thoughts?
5: I definitely want to boost everything Kaya and Colin said. Um, And I also want to say before I go any further, like as a current college athlete, I want to make very clear that I like have nothing but love for my rowing programs at Colgate and IU and everyone I met there have been wonderful. I love my coaches and teammates, but we all exist under kind of like this beast of a system. And my, like awareness of it grew, I think, through like comparisons that came from connecting with other athletes and across programs, like Kaya was talking about. So as a Colgate rower, it is Division One, um, but very much not at all at the same intensity as like Big Ten rowing. Um, it's in the Patriot League, so it was like a very different world. And I had a friend who played. Big Ten basketball at the time, and I remember talking to her and saying, like, we're both D1 athletes, like, we're competing at the same level, And but we very clearly weren't, and my first thought that, oh, this is kind of weird, is when I realized that her as this Big Ten women's basketball player and me as this random, not-on-scholarship rower in upstate New York followed the same compliance rules, and if someone... Bought her lunch, or if someone bought me lunch, we'd both be ineligible. And I remember thinking, like, that's kind of weird. And like Kai was talking about, it's a rabbit hole. And especially the comparison between my program at Colgate and the program at IU, like very different intensity levels. And as I said, like athletics kind of overtook my life at IU because it has to. Like the more competitive, like arena you're in, the more it demands from you. And and that took a toll on my mental health. And I remember talking with a sports psychologist and saying, like, it just feels like too much. And no matter what we talk about in these 50 minutes I have with you, no matter how much better this makes me feel, like, I have to wake up and do it all again. Like, there's nothing Mm -hmm. I can do. And I think that experience and knowing what other programs are like and knowing what other Athletes are going through really kind of helped me connect the dots to like see a bigger picture.
1: Super insightful, and we're definitely gonna pick up on the mental health aspect later because um, it's it's really in, in crisis right now. um So thank you for that.
5: Appreciate you, Sophie, Kaya, kind of Colin for sharing, and uh,
6: Sophie. You know, I feel for you. I can, you know, hear the struggle and fatigue in your voice. I really hope you guys qualify for NCs and um, hearing you speak and hearing current college athletes speak, speak anytime just reminds me of how exhausting and training being a college athlete is um, because the demands are relentless. But for me, my criticism evolved the starting my. So my freshman year at Washington State, uh, my dad suddenly died from a stroke. And in growing from that grief, um, you know, I developed a new perspective uh, rooted in empathy. And a year later, our quarterback, Tyler Holinski died by suicide. And in the wake of his death, it opened the floodgates to conversations about mm-hmm. mental health on our campus. And we realized that we were all suffering in silence. And that inspired me to get involved in SAC and to be a SAC president and to do as much mental health advocacy as possible. Um, And only through that experience of advocating for college athlete mental health within the system did I begin to experience pushback from um, athletic department and other forces and started to really put the pieces together of the business that we operate in And the moment, the breaking point for me was when we were at the Pac-12 council meeting. It was every athletic director, every senior women's administrator, and every faculty athletics representative and the commissioner, and one athlete representing every school in the Pac-12. And Kate Fagan, who Mm -hmm. wrote What Made Maddie Run, was giving one of the most powerful mental health talks I'd ever heard. And I look around the room and all the athletes are crying or holding back tears, and All the athletic directors are typing away at their laptops without a care in the world. And in that moment I realized they just don't care, and this issue will never be fixed within the system. And then in studying I went to Berkeley and got a master's in the cultural studies of sport and education, which is pretty much just a complicated way of saying I studied why the NCAA is broken. And in those studies have firmly landed on the conclusion that. Um the NCAA's business model of amateurism, it, which is rooted in tax evasion and exploitation, is the fundamental cause of the college athlete mental health crisis. and seeing how the history of the NCAA and hearing connects to where we are today in this environment where there is theres zero protections, zero safety net, zero accountability, um, and then also, personally having so many friends in the in college sports and who are currently competing and hearing their stories and how much they're struggling. Mm-hmm. Um, that's essentially, that's why yeah, I'm so I, passionate I, I, about I'll this issue and how I developed a critical perspective. And also, and lastly, let, let me, and also weaved in through the, in this whole story as well as um, my journey as a, mm-hmm very privileged white male cross country runner and learning where that privilege um puts me in society and then also how college sports reflect this this horrific racist exploitation of black labor, um where the overwhelming majority of so, yeah. collegiate football and basketball players are black, while only four percent of students on campuses are black. And so um, those are all all we've done. Yeah, I'm hearing with each other, so much uh, with mental health at the root of so, it. So
2: so many common strains here, and 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 things that you you're all talking about in terms of mental health, in terms of um, the relationships with athletic department staff and with the system as a whole. So I, I I propose let's open up this rabbit hole, or let's go down this rabbit hole, as as Sophie and Kaya mentioned, and and let's start chatting about some of like our biggest beefs with this system and some of the biggest from your perspective as current or former college athletes what's really wrong with this system and and i propose we just all unmute and we just like have a a real conversation here (laughs) because (laughs) yeah because like i'm i'm really sensing that there's a lot of common things that you're all you all want to talk about um and i think there there can be some really like generative discussion here so i'll i'll, I'll moderate us I'll, so I'll start with someone but please if anyone wants to jump in i think like we can have some overlapping and it's, it can be edited out and all that stuff so so kaya what's your biggest beef with this system
3: you know i <laughs> my beef with the NCAA is a barbecue because there's oh. so much beef yeah, for a really corny, <laughs> <laughs> corny I analogy, um, I know that we're probably going to bring up mental health um, uh, yeah. later, so I'll <laughs> save that for the finale. But I really have beef with the NCAA in the fact that I think it is basically a reincarnation of shadow slavery and the way in which it uses black and brown labor to generate billions of dollars um, without just compensation. Um, I think it's a painfully obvious system that a lot of people actively choose to ignore. And I think that that is one of my biggest beefs with NCAA, just how insidiously it gets away with it um, and how it almost tricks people into believing that they are, you know, these great benefactors of black and brown communities when in reality they are a... Mm -hmm. uh, What's the word I want to use? They are a... What's the thing when... um, Andrew, You're do you know going. the word I'm thinking of? Um, when in reality, they're they are a conveyor belt. That's what I was working looking for. They are a conveyor belt leading people to the slaughter. Um, mm. and I think that's evident in the way in which there's been so many deaths, um whether by suicide or <laughs> overworking mm-hmm. for football players, especially, um which is a mm. predominantly black sport. um I think. It's obvious in, you know, the rates at which black and brown players graduate from their colleges. I think it Mm. just shows that their labor is being exploited in a way that really doesn't benefit them in any significant way. So that's my huge beat.
4: I think, (laughs) uh, I don't know if y'all are cool with me naturally kind of rolling in that thing. But yeah, just speaking beef, that's, uh, I got a lot. I got a lot. It's hard (laughs) to. out what's top of mind. Um being so emotionally invested and <laughs> personally invested in this system. Most of my friends are a part of it um as student athletes. Um I mean I've been out of college one year now and it's just crazy, you know, how much it has changed, but it is the same, you know, just in terms of um speaking specifically to the teams that I'm familiar with. Um, just how a lot of the guys have kind of swapped out. You know, they're completely new faces to than what I'm used to, and I think some of the best advice I ever got um, when deciding on a university was to look at retention rate, look at a coach's retention, uh, coaches and a team, and just an overall program who all stays there, who gets a degree. You know, you have a lot, of, you have some of these programs that we're getting highly talented recruits, people that are, you know, on social media or otherwise shown as being on top of the world. Well, two years from now, where are they at? They're either back home. <laughs> these programs that mm-hmm. are, like, you know, they're four or five star athletes. Um, speaking specifically to football and what I know, or even basketball, that you know, people shuffle around. They yeah. they aren't getting in their degree. You know, yeah. transferring credits isn't always an easy task. Yeah. <laughs> For those of you who've transferred, you, you know, I haven't personally, but uh, yeah, it just. I think it's hard for me to kind of pick out uh, one big issue. There's just there's a lot going on. There's a lot going on. <laughs> I don't know if that's easy to work off of.
2: <laughs> well, no, I th- I think it is. Like uh, I I like the analogy of a rabbit hole here because like yeah, mm-hmm. once you start going down, you realize there's not one thing. There's there's several things wrong yeah. um, with, with this with this whole system. Sophie, did, did you have did you have anything you wanted to add?
5: Yeah, I think. My biggest beef is something I don't think has really been directly mentioned yet, but like mm. I think of the phrase like benevolent dictator, and I'm a political mm. science major, so tell me if that's coming out <laughs> too much.
1: No, I'm a but, I'm um, a historian. I like that term. <laughs> I mean, I like that for what you all are describing. Story. So please, please go with that.
5: Yeah, and I'm thinking specifically of our experience with COVID because mm. the first year back from COVID, it was obviously there was the tension between like playing and like protecting our athletes. Um, Mm. but at the end of the day, we woke up every morning and had a COVID test for free every single morning. And Mm. like, I understood talking to my friends who weren't athletes, like how incredible that was for us and how Mm.
3: great it was and
5: how they really looked after us that first year of COVID. Um, and then we, Went back for summer, I guess COVID disappeared, and we came back this year and like nothing. We had an outbreak on our team. We had to beg for tests. Um, Wow. We had to go to the university for tests. They wouldn't, like, you weren't advised to get tested until you'd been showing symptoms for a couple of days, and it spread on our team. And, like, I personally got it, and they almost put me on a flight, but I had to insist on a test, and it was positive. And, I think that just reflects like an overall dynamic of like athletics in your department and your programs have the power to give you whatever you need and whatever you want. You know, like MRIs, whenever you need them, it just feels like (laughs) you have everything you need, Mm -hmm. but that can go the other way just as easily. And Mm. like, you don't realize that until, you're sitting there insisting that like your rib is hurt and something's wrong and there's nothing you can do about it because your trainer's not listening to you or they're just insisting that you show up to practices so the same like power that kind of disillusions athletes and makes them think like they're in such a great position which in some ways like we get incredible benefits but that same power can go the other way and at the end of the day there's nothing you can do
4: who do you report it to?
5: Exactly.
4: <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah. I think he, the the reporting scheme and, and like the, the there there's a sociological concept called structural coercion here that we've talked about on the show and in some of our writings that the fact that that these athletic departments can coerce behavior and coerce like volent so called voluntary consent to a bunch of things through these like. Uh, through this benevolent dictatorship, um, mm-hmm. I, I really love that that concept and and these processes where they can choose to either give you resources, give you mental health, physical health support, or not. And there are there's a lot of um, uh, there are a lot of challenges in that, and I think COVID really highlighted that uh, as, as well. Andrew, I'd like to get your take on this this question as well.
6: Yeah, I appreciate everyone's perspective, and I think something that needs to be at the mm. forefront is, like, I'm no longer a college athlete and can no longer speak for the mm. current experience. COVID essentially ended my career, and I have noticed a dramatic uptick in pressure and expectations that have been placed on athletes um, in accelerating this mm-hmm shift to hyper-professionalism in college sport but my fundamental beef with the NCAA is that the at the end of the day they don't care about protecting us or giving us an education or even keeping us alive they care about making money but they want all the benefits that come from being an educational opportunity such as not paying taxes and i think it can all be summed up and distilled in the term student-athlete itself which was a deliberate legal effort by the ncaa in 1956 to misclassify college Mm -hmm. athletes as volunteers rather than as employees and Excuse me, and the term is now embraced by our community while simultaneously upholding the oppressive infrastructure that was created in the 50s and is a seemingly irreversible where they've designed the system in a way where so many university presidents have so much power and it spreads so thin across so many, Stakeholders that changing the fundamental existence of the Mm -hmm. system is essentially impossible. And I have my fundamental beef with that is now the system that was created with very deliberate financial benefits um, and very oppressive and exploitative impacts on college athletes is now there is zero oversight and zero accountability in the ncaa and the more money gets pumped into the system the more pressures on athletic departments to win the more pressure gets put on coaches to win and the more pressure gets put on athletes both physically and mentally to win and we've reached we've beyond surpassed the breaking point um, and it's is painfully obvious in the fact that yeah. we've lost yeah. Um, Six college athletes to suicide in the last two months. And that is mm-hmm. like these are athletes yeah. these are real people, you know, um, who have families who have communities who have teammates, friends, and those athletes, those you know communities and families are left heartbroken in the wake of these deaths in um, the NCAA and the conferences and the athletic departments don't even issue statements acknowledging this mental health crisis. But the like, to sum it all up, the fundamental issue is the system is created by the fact that the NCAA operates as a lucrative business. I don't think anyone can deny that. They make a billion dollars a year purely only from basketball. It operates as a lucrative business, but is legally regulated as a tax-exempt nonprofit. And it's absolutely a tax evasion scheme, but it has massive map life chain, you know life or death repercussions on the college athlete community. And what I hope people realize is that the NCAA's business model of amateurism, which the Supreme Court has already said is illegal, um, that that business model is the fundamental cause of the college athlete mental health crisis, and that's yeah, why I we mean, need to I do mean, something about it.
2: The, one of the things here that, that we've been trying to amplify um, and that you folks are, are really articulating well here uh, is that when you can create a system that denies employment rights, that that is built to deny rights to um to compensation so that you can make more money. that you are also systematically denying rights to health care. You're denying rights to um in in some ways, to like the ability to be a person and to to be supported as such. And I think that's really what you're 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 highlighting there, at least for me. It's that, like, uh, part of the from their perspective uh, 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 an indirect uh, cause or a consequence of denying um, folks employment right and, and rights to workmen's compensation is actually ushering in this massive health crisis that, we've 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 highlighted here um colin i i don't i don't want to did you have something to add i noticed that you're you're on un- on un- and you i, I don't want to un- stifle conversation <laughs> no no you're all.
4: good i'm just kind of i'm kind of mm-hmm people so i don't know mm. if that's coming over <laughs> you, know, no, no. I, you know um no no that's great andrew yeah no i i don't know a lot of the stats i don't know about how mm. you know i'm learning just listening to this <laughs> listening to y'all talk um, which is great,
6: but, uh, yeah, I, I, no, we're good, keep going, man. One of the stats, not, not, and you can build off of it, but one of the stats that's insane is, um, from 2000 to 2018, 85 college athletes died yeah. from, quote, indirect causes related to their sport. And the NCAA published this in an article called "Breaking Point," ironically in 2018. And the Oklahoma's former head athletic trainer, he recently retired. Um, Oklahoma's head athletic trainer in a in an academic journal stated, "Collegiate football's dirty little secret is that we are killing our players." And we was italicized um, to imply that everyone who is in charge of overseeing the safety of college athletes and in keeping the system running is partially complicit for all of yeah. these deaths that happen from overtraining and abuse. And um, you know, yeah. most famously was Jordan McNair in twenty eighteen at Maryland. Um and it it really I think football players because you're in this world in this system in this culture day in day out i see the stuff the punishments that y'all get and it, it really to me in the worst cases that i've seen at multiple schools is it can only be described as torture um it's it's pretty horrific the things that happen but there is a eight yeah. so 85 85 athletes died from essentially overtraining from 2000 to 2018 and that doesn't even i don't even know the stat on yeah. well, suicide i think it's not something that the um, that kind of comes in or
4: kind of ends up being the cause of that is what a culture that kind of permits or in a lot of cases encourages want to be drill instructors like the militarization mm-hmm. of this amateur sport um which i'd say in heavy sarcasm quote air quotes some air quoting over here um <laughs> And yeah, so there's just a loss of the self as a player when, when you're thrown into situations like that, Um, you know, you're, you're getting most of the time verbally abused, or if it, if it isn't yelling, it's talking to you about being tough or something like that while you're undergoing the physical, um, you know, whatever you're, you're undergoing. So um, no, I I (laughs) definitely echo that or plus one up both.
3: I was going to say that goes into a lot of the, the abuse dynamics of college sport in general. I mean, sport in general, obviously it happens mm-hmm. at the youth level it happens at the professional level. If yeah. I'm a living, walking, breathing example of that. But yeah. I, I think that the lack of accountability that Andrew talked about earlier in his gospel, um, <laughs> really just points to the fact that like, we the NCAA as a system functions to let abusers continue abusing athletes to make a profit and I think it all circles back to that sort of core beef that Andrew has like they are existing to make a profit and I think that allows a lot of sneaky snooks to sort of integrate themselves into the system without any consequence and you see that in football you see that in a lot of the women's sports a lot of not only emotional and verbal abuse but sexual abuse that happens i think it's a really despicable system that people are you know in one way or another coerced to exist in and you know they don't even really realize what's happening to them until it's too late
5: Yeah, if I could add something too to this conversation about like abuse and athlete experience. Um, One thing I've found this past year being involved in SAC, and I just took over as like the head of the mental health committee in SAC. So I am just as passionate about mental health as everybody else on this call um, is the like the sport by sport and team by team dynamics and differences um, just. I've like worked directly with our athletic director and like deputy athletic director on mental health in the department. And they're, they're very interested in it. It's a conversation that they're really eager to have. But one thing we told them as athletes is we said, like, look, 99% of our experience as mental health lead or as mental, wait, as college athletes in mental health, excuse me, is dictated by our experiences with our coaches on our teams and we get in these bubbles, almost, of our teams, and, you know, I've talked to athletes in different sports, and there are widely different experiences with mental health just within IU Athletics, and it all depends on the coaches and team culture, and I just think that's something that's interesting, because a lot of times stuff comes out about coaches, and I'm speaking about something that very recently happened at IU something came out about a coach and um our athletic director and deputy athletic director who do very much care for like the student athletes and the student athlete experience said like we had no idea no one said anything no one came to us about it no one had reported anything and there was this like there was this atmosphere of intimidation and silence within the team that I think just needs to be broken open across teams mm-hmm. within departments and also Bro. across programs across the country because kind of like what i said like what opened my eyes was the comparison aspect and i think if we connect athletes across sports and across the country like it's just we become so much more like resilient and that conversation between us like can protect us and give us like a safeguard i suppose mm-hmm.
4: Uh, oh, go, Andrew. Yeah, it's...
5: No, you're good, man. Go.
4: <laughs> I was going to say a lot.
6: You sure, calling You
4: can go. I got it written down.
6: The, uh... <clears throat> I was... I, I was going to say the, um... Yeah. It makes it, the culture of silence in college sports exists because we have zero rights. Zero protections. And coaches have the protection and shield of the university's brand. And this was beyond, this was most obvious in when Larry Nassar was exposed and it came to light in court that his abuse was first reported to Michigan State Athletics staff in 1997. And he wasn't. It wasn't until 2015, I believe, or 16, uh, maybe 14. Around then, it wasn't until mid 2010s until uh, Rachel Den Hollander went to the police. But the without any protections, we are simply mm. stuck in the system that exists, and we don't know any different because. That's what we live on a day-to-day basis. And as athletes, something we need to recognize is that we are uniquely equipped to endure suffering. (laughs) Especially as a cross-country runner. I mean, that's essentially the entire premise of our sport. But the you know, all sports it's like push through the pain, right? That's what we're always told, push through, push through. Um, you know, champions are are built in in the shadows, but the And something Victoria Garrick does a phenomenal job of illustrating the difference of is we need to be aware of ourselves of at what point does that become damaging. Um, And as we consider this, as we consider systemic reform, Mm -hmm. we need safeguards in place that protect whistleblowers who do speak up and we create avenues for them to anonymously report abuse. And we hold coaches accountable when that... When that abuse is reported. I've there it is often, often this happens where a coach is silently uh, fired or silently resigns and hired somewhere else. Um, and there's zero certification system in America for coaching. it's, It's a massive, massive issue of coaches, but on the on the administrator front of You know, when I was at Washington State, when I was at Cal, I loved every administrator we had, um, and I felt that they truly had my best interests at heart. But now I realize that everyone just has their own best interests at heart. Like, fundamentally, we're all just trying to do what we can to put a roof over our head and feed our families and have fun in the process. And if we can help others, great. But history shows us that um, uh, folks who work for universities will protect their job before they speak out against the system. And with mental health specifically, there's a very obvious, the most obvious and simplest way to address (laughs) it on any campus is to hire more counselors. And I want to know how many counselors are there on, or how many athletes on your campus and how many counselors. And I know a lot of places have like one or two counselors for 500 to 700 athletes. And it's like, well, hire more. But then they have yeah. marketing departments with 20 plus people that have 20 plus fundraise full time. And so the investment of resources shows a very obvious um set of priorities and it's unfortunate that making money is a higher priority than protecting our mental or physical health and the only way that institution you know COVID is a great example um, you know <clears throat> football was going to happen um, there wouldn't have been any there wouldn't yeah, have been any COVID absolutely. protections yeah. if athletes didn't stand up and demand it collectively
1: let me just interject. Sorry, Colin, I know you want to go. Um, the NCAA used the same argument in 2020 um, when three, I think, track and field athletes uh, tried to sue for sexual abuse. And they said the same thing. We have no legal duty to protect athletes from abuse or sexual abuse, right? So they're they, they continue to say this over and over again, even in the face of sexual abuse. Which is not any worse than someone dying. I'm not trying to say it's that, but like you would think 2020, right? This is after like Me Too, ostensibly, where they should have cared and they did not. So I'm really glad that you brought that up because it shows how damn committed they are to refusing to protect any athletes at all. Or like you said, opening themselves up to potentially being held liable when they absolutely should be.
6: And
5: in most right, recently,
6: and Colin, I'm going to call on you out right after I say this, but a couple weeks ago, a couple weeks ago, a couple weeks ago, um, the NCAA won a lawsuit brought to them by a Oregon football player who had his career ended from abusive workouts, and it took the same legal stance. So it's a... Uh, to consistent legal standards. Yeah. So, uh, just I'll try to
4: get this kind of quick, and feel free to jump in if anyone has um, any questions or um, wants to add to it. Please do. Um, but for for the two things, um, one was I did want to touch on administration, and then I also want to touch on um, protections and um, you know SAC. <laughs> I honestly want to get y'all's yeah. opinion on SAC. But um, the one thing I'll say real quick on administration um, is that. Uh, I disagree with, I can't remember who said it. Someone said earlier that um, stuff's going on in silence. I would disagree with that <laughs> 100%. I, I think um, any AD or anyone in, in um, athletic administration um, kind of has a good idea of what's going. Um, not to say that there aren't some you know exceptions to that rule, but I feel like pe- most people can understand um, how someone is. If you have a coach that's pretty, you know, uh, not not the nicest person in the world. Um, I, I don't think it's too much of a leap to assume that they might be kind of um, rough <laughs> on their players. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't. I don't think that's tough for administration to see. Um, and two, just kind of jump in the sack. Do you Just kind of quick question, just to take a poll. How do y'all feel about sack? If if you had to put it simply, boo, boo. Okay, that's boo.
2: <laughs> tell, tell, tell us how you really feel. Kaya.
3: <laughs> Sorry, I know my expressions in this podcast have been weird, but yeah, I mean, I was actually no, no, no. no, no. I was never a part of SAC. Oddly enough, because there wasn't enough room for representatives, mm-hmm. and I think mm-hmm. that that in itself shows that it's not the best system for representing athletes. Because how the hell was somebody as radical as me going to be represented? Yeah. in sack mm-hmm. when there's not even you, room for it do you consider One. yourself a radical i i mean according to white america yes
4: okay okay, okay. Um, sorry to interrupt
3: <laughs> <laughs> sorry yeah <laughs> that, that is a well-known um, radical but yeah other than that i just it just feels like i mean while i do think that it you know sack had purposes to help athletes and i don't think that anybody is that's a part of SAC like, has bad intentions. Obviously, like you guys participated it. You guys are great people. I just think that it's sort of a replication of, maybe not a replication, that's a bad word, but um, just another tool that the NCAA sort of uses to make athletes feel like they have power in a system where they really don't.
5: I 100% agree that it's like, it's, Not what it claims to be. It's not real representation for student athletes. And like being an executive member of SAC, like our hands are tied left and right. And we have all these ideas and like not even half of them can even be considered. But with that being said, like it has, like I have told my teammates, it's probably joining SAC is probably the best decision I've made at IU because it has enhanced my student athlete experience so much. Like, I always dreamed of being friends with other athletes. Cause you know, I'm at IU, like I've got Olympic swimmers eating lunch next to me. Like I wanted to be friends with them so bad. And like I am now and it's because of SAC and it's, I'm surrounded by other people who do have like great intentions. And the ones who do show up to the SAC meetings are the people that do care about the student athlete experience. And I can have conversations about college athletics with. So while I definitely agree that it's, kind of like a I don't know, like just kind of a farce when it comes to real representation. I think it has like personally it has really enhanced my experience.
6: Yeah, as someone who was a SAC president of Washington State and Berkeley um mm-hmm. both are true. Like <laughs> SAC is whack, but it's also one of the most powerful Mm. and meaningful experiences I've ever had because it's the best we got. You know, there is no other avenue for us to have a voice. Um, And SAC is not a real voice because it is not real power at the end of the day. It's not real representation the way players association is. it, it's just a department of the athletic department, essentially. There's like a club that they host. Um, and SAC has unfortunately become a tool that the NCAA manipulates in their benefit by not investing in its growth. Um, there's zero uniform guidelines around how SAC ought to operate, what the purpose of SAC even is. And how much funding SAC on each campus or conference gets. Um, And that directly impacts what you can and can't do with it. But I think, you know, at its best, SAC is an avenue for fostering community amongst inspiring college athlete leaders. And that's very, very powerful. But at its worst, It's a misrepresentation of our collective voice, and also an avenue to drain precious resource of time that we have to actually talk about and address these issues. Because they want you, you know, and I, I believe in this too. It's like, oh, become a SAC president. Okay, go to the conference. Go to like the Pac-12 conferences and speak and use your voice there. And you put in all this effort only to realize the system will never change unless um, a handful of people at the tip top of it want it to. And you have zero votes on that board of directors because you're not a university president. And that's that was a painful reality for me to recognize. Um, but so many but what they want is for athletes for those athletes, um, like you, Sophie, who are um, you know, an incredible leader, for you to spend your time on that in that avenue, rather than in a different avenue building a players association or um going against what an athletic department wants. Um and then also with the coaches and or athletic departments knowing about whether something is happening i mean that's the that's a fine legal line that you know differs case by case but there is a common practice of turning a blind eye or oh, i'd rather not know what you're doing you know i don't want to see what you do at practice um keep me out of it you. you even see that with head football coaches and they are never the ones administering the punishments i mean Maybe Mike Leach learned this lesson better than others, and I saw it directly at Washington State because uh, he was fired from Texas Tech for, I think, throwing a kid who had a concussion into a shed and locking him in it. Um, something like that. It might be a gross simplification, but um, at Washington State, I, a common punishment I would see from the lunchroom was athletes, football player, rolling up and down the field on the ground, like hundreds of yards until they throw up. And I later learned that that punishment was actually one step in a series of punishments. And that was like the culmination of it where they had to like run the stadium stairs with like, you know, chains and weights on. And I mean, that's why I say torturous things happen in college football like i don't know how that's good for someone's educational development
3: i feel like that was something that (laughs) we we had to do too like i i remember hearing about like you have to roll across the field we did this thing called champ camp where like all the athletes would get together on fridays and do like basically high intensity interval training circuits and Mm -hmm. i feel like if you were late or something to our workout then you'd have to like roll across the field i could be like exaggerating this but that sounds so familiar it just like unlocked something i tried to keep deep and hidden in my psyche
4: rolls definitely make me throw up i can't do rolls
3: wait
1: wait
4: (laughs) we've
6: heard. (laughs) <laughs> so you, mean, you talk about it so casually yeah. and you talk about it like oh yeah that's just a punishment like I don't want to do rolls like obviously you don't want to do rolls no one no one should no one should No, be doing rolls like that shouldn't be allowed for an if for sure. it's too dangerous
2: we've heard these stories
6: <laughs> it's like hey got I bet that helped you do better on exam. that exam huh and? for your, for
4: your <laughs> educational benefit
2: from <laughs> so so many athletes just about things that like uh, Andrew, you're you're putting this at like in terms of like torture type things yeah. from so many campus athletic workers, and it, it's it, it. I think it speaks to Collins' like broader question of like whether or not there's actual um, legs to student athlete advisory oh. committees and to <laughs> the, the like whether or not there's actually because it doesn't deal with power. It doesn't yeah. deal with no, the power, no power. imbalance it's, that structures the very creation and the very formulation of that advisory committee, right? The same power relations are still there.
4: It's 100% self-indulgent. Sorry what you're saying. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, some athletes can't tell. <laughs> some athletes
6: can't did, tell. self-indulgent man. for the NCAA, but not for the athletes. Um, yeah. The, yeah. Well, yeah, but I can't – I'll, I'll never blame an athlete for being misguided and misled because you want to trust – here's the thing. We got to – okay, what is power fundamentally? This is a – I mean this – I remember vividly a professor at Berkeley asking me this question and be just kind of like lost. Like I don't – we talk about that all the power dynamics, the power – what is power? Power is control of resources. And that comes in two forms. Normally, it comes in two forms. Comes in, actually I'll say three for this. Comes in votes on a board, like the board of directors that actually controls the decisions that are made. Comes in votes. And it comes in money. Who has what budget? How is money spent and allocated? And it also comes in social influence. And In the first two, we have absolutely zero power. Like there is literally zero seats for college athletes on the NCAA board of directors. We literally have zero percent of power on that. I think they think they're in the process of ratifying a new constitution that would give us one seat out of like, which is still it's like even if they vote against us, we don't care. Like we'll dominate against them no matter what. And um, you know, money. Well, I mean. College athletes are poor. We don't make any money. Um, it's changing now a little bit, thankfully. Some athletes are able to, you know, put some food in their tables and on their family's tables. But the, um, in you know, compared to a billion dollars, we don't have any money. And um, this question of power is important because the, you know, what you were touching on, Sophie, was, well, how complicit. Are the power brokers in college sports in the system that exists today? And, you know, intent matters, but it also, I'd say that, like I said, 99% of athletics administrators are well intentioned. And I'll even go as far as to say believe that they're doing what's best for us, but they're not willing or i haven't seen any university presidents or coaches publicly support a shift in power um which the only true shift in power that could possibly happen which is a players association with a collective bargaining agreement and we know this because every professional sports league that exists operates with players associations in collective bargaining agreements, it's the only it has to be written in contract that half the power goes to this entity and the other half the power goes to athletes, and those two entities need to compromise and figure it out. Um, but most of the power brokers in the current system want to keep holding the keys to the kingdom, if you will. They'll do is they'll say, We we have your best interests at heart. Don't worry about it. And they'll tell you and they'll make you feel that way. But when it comes to actually voting on issues and it comes to actually spending money on things that matter most to us, like therapists, um, like non abusive coaches, um, when it comes to actually using that power in our best interests, they tend to use it in their best interest, which is to make more money. Um, which is why the power needs to fundamentally shift um, from a really high level
5: overview of that.
2: Yeah, and one, I'd like to just kind of echo two things here, and and Andrew, you you put you supported um Sophie's like participation in this, and I and I, I completely never ever fault um someone who's being exploited or uh, that that is on the on the lesser extent of the power imbalance uh in a system that is exploit exploitative for for doing the best that they can and absolutely the, the when the decision is between bad and worse it is not a true decision that's being made and that's to some degree what the these sac committees are it's like the only thing that folks might have and i also think you're pointing to the fact that short of recognition of legal rights, then a system that has total control can treat everyone in that system as a non-human. And we're seeing these debates run wild in terms of transgender folks right now. And, and I, I, I don't want, we don't have to go in that direction, but I just want to highlight that it, when you can deny a group of folks legal rights to all of the things that everyone else has legal rights to, you can treat those people as less than, uh, less than people, um, and, and you can do immeasurable harm to the to these folks. So I don't really have a a question framed. I just really want to echo what you're all saying. And Sophie, Kaya, both of you mentioned the fact that like athlete mobilization is the way there. And yes, if there's something from these SAT committees, it's like maybe it is helping folks talk to one another, right? And mobilize in some way.
6: Yeah, the and I think an important nuance that really needs to be made that it gets lost is it's not necessarily the people that we know our coaches, the athletic directors, you know, the commissioners. It's not necessarily the people who are treating athletes as inhuman and letting us die or be abused. Um it is that they support a system collectively mm-hmm. that does treat athletes as inhuman, mm-hmm. not in theory, but in reality. And I hear this the, the cognitive dissonance is mind blowing to me. Of we want to provide college athletes with the best experience possible. I mean, how often have we heard that from every single person in the NCAA? Our coaches, our athletic directors, everyone says we want to provide you the best experience possible. And there's such a focus on being the best, but not enough focus on, well, how do we avoid? And protect the worst things from happening. How do we prevent that from ever happening? How do we prevent sexual assault? You know, neglig- medical negligence, um, abuse. How do we make it impossible for things like that to happen? And I think it comes from a, la- a refusal to recognize that the right. system is responsible for those things. Um, I actually had I actually had a conversation with um, a health counselor at a sec school a well-known sec school and really well-intentioned guy and had you know does phenomenal work day in and day out to help athletes and help us deal with the pressures that we face but i asked him like do you do you think that these suicides are preventable and he said you know at a certain point If someone wants to take their life, they're going to, they're going to find a way to take their life. And I was just taken aback that that was a perspective a licensed mental health provider could have, because to me, being on the outside and having experienced it, it seems so obvious that the pressures athletes face today are way more than the pressures I faced when I was an athlete and are even more so than the pressures athletes faced 20 years ago. and. The rate of suicide is just continues to go up, and so you know, it's people like to have this conversation, the hypothetical, Um, and I I bring this up because it's not hypothetical. Athletes are dying, and it's it's at least I choose to believe it's preventable, um, at least for some, because the pressures are just too much. You know, having lived that, it needs it needs to change, and you know something I've talked to with. Every every former college athlete I've had this conversation with, and I've, I, I asked them all the time, I said, do you think that being a college athlete is traumatizing? And every single one has, without hesitation, said yes. And that in and of itself means something needs to change. And we're, we're at the point right now, we can't even talk, like, realistically, like, you know, a collective bargaining agreement and players association, not so far. From where we're at today in terms of where athletes' minds are at and what needs to happen. And that's why SAC does phenomenal work in the sense that it's a gathering space for real college athlete leaders who truly care and are passionate about helping our community. And we're so it's why I also have in you know, Sophie, I told you this when I first met you, but it's why I have so much respect for everyone who's in SAC. Um, but I think the folks who are not eighteen to twenty-two year old college athletes need to start having real conversations about the power dynamics in the system at hand. And um, I'm I'm uh, steam steamrolling this conversation, so I'm gonna stop talking now.
5: I think if I could add something that I. And getting from your point, Andrew, that I agree with is I think there's like a like college athletics to me, especially in rowing and especially in certain sports like this is like one of the most competitive arenas in the whole world for sports. Mm -hmm. Like the NCAA championship for rowing is full of boats of girls from national teams from all over the world, like Italians. Kiwis, Australian, like they're all on some country's national team and they're all here in the US competing for a school. And like you can see that with swimming too, like Olympians are everywhere at NCAA's. And it's Mm -hmm. like the NCAA has created such a competitive arena. And I think when people say, like, what can we do to protect student athletes and to like stop this mental health crisis in student athletes, like I, like my answer is like if nothing changes like nothing like as long as it remains like as competitive as it is like i understand it as nothing can change and maybe it's because i'm in a sport where even just like yesterday after we raced big tens like a couple boats like came up short of like our goals and what our all our coach can really say after that is you need to work harder like you need to put more hours in that are already over the 20 hours a week that you're doing, because that's what the other team did. Like that's the only way we can get better than these other girls is squeeze more out of you. And so I almost think like there's just a, like for actual change to happen in the NCAA to protect athletes, like the level of competition and almost like what makes NCAA athletics so prestigious and so cool I guess to outsiders like has to change and maybe like diminish a little and I also wanted to like point something out that I don't know if you guys Mm -hmm. have felt like when it comes to the nuances of these conversations I personally really struggle to talk to my teammates about my problems with college athletics because I feel like I'm constantly having to like point out these nuances and say, like, this is true, but and this is true that I like hate this system that we're under, and it's really messed up that we have to do this. But as like a senior and a leader on the team and someone who cares about our success and someone who wants a big ten medal around their neck and wants to go to NC's, like, keep putting in the effort and keep putting in the time and like, keep going in and doing extra mileage, like it's I think it's really hard to. I've found at least it's hard to be like an advocate, like against like the college athletic system while also like loving your sport and putting everything you can into it. And I don't know. I'd love to hear your guys' thoughts on that, but it feels weird being a leader on my team and having these views and also trying to encourage them Mm -hmm. to care about their sport. You know, I don't know.
6: Yeah, the competitive excellence of the NCAA is probably the only thing that won't change, and that's that's what attracts the best athletes in the world to it. You know, Olympians. It was wild for me being at Cal lifting as a. I mean, I'm six foot, one hundred forty five pounds, and I have lifted next to Olympic swimmers before. I mean, that should never be. Allowed. It's ridiculous. Um, but the, um the, your coaches, when they after you guys didn't perform as well as you wanted to, and by the way, you you competed in the big ten championships. Like that needs to be celebrated in and of itself, and it's an incredible accomplishment. Um, but your coaches at the end of the day, they get paid off how well you compete. And the coaches aren't getting in the boat, they're not rowing. So they're going to do anything... If they feel like their jobs are being threatened because you guys aren't competing at the level that they want you to to keep their job or to get the bonus that they want to get, um, you know they're going to influence your decisions in a way that benefits them. And they're going to do it in a way that is... By telling you, this benefits you because we, we are... Not to... Pun intended, but we're all in the same boat here. We all want to win. And that's fine, but at what cost and with what protections and compensation? And the safety, there's a lot of obvious things that could happen. First off, physicians, licensed medical providers should never be employed by athletic departments. They should be independent. I mean, it's insane to me how much medical negligence and misguidance exists in college sports. Colin, If I actually would love your perspective on this, Colin. Have you, ever, what kind of, uh, I mean, I don't know how many beans you can spill in this, but like, have you okay. seen things in football where, you know, doctors misguide athletes or tell them, you know, hey, play in spite of the concussion or take these pills or, you know, take this shot, take these painkillers. Like have you ever seen, in football yeah, because i've heard so, some crazy stories um, in football. i will speak in generalities um <laughs>
4: yeah. i think i think the one of the biggest things that people don't realize um is you know we all have for this is just what's coming to mind we all have a handler which which is our your trainer whoever is your trainer if you're in tennis you usually have one you're going through one person or you know football you might be more fortunate and have eight or Six full staff af- athletic trainers, um, but if you need an MRI, X-ray, you're hurt, you're banged up, your treatment and the severity of your injury, lest it be a broken leg, like as long as you aren't disabled, um, your treatment and diagnosis goes through them. So they hold a lot of power in the relationship, and I, I personally, I've, I've undergone three reconstructive surgeries. I'm very thankful for the doctors I've had. Um, I've never personally experienced a doctor misdiagnosing, um, an issue, but I have heard, and it is kind of a known thing that if you tweak something on the field, get carted off or limp off and have a person, a look at you, it might be a completely different deal, um, outside of, um, the objective, you know, facts of what's wrong with you, you know, Certain people have certain biases towards players like, oh, these players always come in are always complaining you that isn't an objective medical experience that protects players like they they don't have investment. And in some instances, being an independent contractor or, you know, an independent of the um, football program, that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be as held accountable. Um, So I (laughs) that is one point. Um, that i think doesn't get brought up is that yeah doctors can make misdiagnose and coaches can sway you to certain things but your medical as an athlete your medical experience is not that of a normal professional athlete or just a normal person um every time uh most athletes i talk to have had a consultation with a doctor there's always a trainer in the room or there's always a coach in the room they're never alone (laughs) we are legally not allowed to pay for our bills um, I know people who've been sent to collections for univers collections for uni- yeah. because the universities yeah. have not paid their medical bills.
2: Yeah, we've heard these stories.
4: Yeah. So yeah, I, I don't I want to get too into it, man. I could talk to you about that for hours. You can DM me, man. Text me something. <laughs> I'll, I'll let you know. I'll let you know.
6: Yeah, <laughs> got you. No, but the yeah, what I'm saying is that there's, I mean, the handlers like there's people mm. employed by the athletic department. You know, obviously it's different. It's different if um, you know. Uh, your quarterback, who is clearly one of the best quarterbacks in the conference, gets hurt um, versus if, you know, a walk-on who doesn't play any minutes gets hurt. And it's different in football than it is in other sports also. Um, But the point is if you're – and this happens also with education all the time. If your boss or someone's boss is the athletic director, that's going to influence how you do your business. And in realms like safety and medicine, that Ooh. should never influence your decision. Um, and that's what we currently see right now. And there's zero. The NCAA has literally zero safety mandates that say a school has to do X. If they don't, if they let a player die, if the school kills a player, the NCAA will not hold the school accountable. They will meet with their lawyers and hope that that family doesn't sue them. And um, Derek or Johanna, one of you might know how the, the payout the NCAA gives to families of dead parents. Yeah, what is it's it? It's like five grand loved. or something, yeah. ten grand. it's like yeah. Here's what. Here's mm-hmm. here's what here's what your life is worth after you die. Here's five or ten grand. Um, it's, it's, it's bad. And, and what pushes us there is that competitive excellence that you talked about, Sophie, but that competitive excellence needs to have you know, clear I, I mean, guardrails. I personally like, just think it oh needs be money, gosh, man. We
4: talk, I've
6: heard so many people talk about ML. I said, I
4: personally think um, you got to bring in, you know, resources to check it. You <laughs> we were talking about competitiveness and how it's probably not going to leave. You got to give people like cash profit sharing or something. You got to give collective ownership on the over the profits or the proceeds that come from athletics to you know give people other options because I think the whole manipulative culture comes off of and I, you know I've seen this all over. Um, and we're talking about accolades of winning competition. Well, why aren't you getting paid directly? I mean, getting having certain third party, you know, Joe Schmo will get you some money. It's not the same thing. And it doesn't have the influence that we want or that would be desired on coaching staff or athletic administration for treating players better.
1: Well, and and not to mention, not to mention, athletic departments are creating these like NIL positions, right, for people to serve as like middle people. To, support, mm-hmm. to help facilitate athletes to, you know, be able to do NIL, but then that's just more money that's like not in athletes' hands, right? It doesn't actually mm-hmm. address the issues. And of course, NIL is so darn complicated that that's, like, they've made it so complicated to discourage athletes from doing it, and then they add these middle, middle people instead. I mean, we see, even within the old academic community, we see academics that are developing like nil consultant practices and we and our dm are like what the hell is going on like like how, how is this supporting athletes rights how is the supporting athletes you know perspectives and agency we have mm-hmm. no idea but everyone is it's a cash grab um essentially which i think colin is definitely what you're what you're pointing out to
4: no i'm just saying they don't the reason why we're on nil like we should like yeah that's the, that's the crazy moral thing and i I don't really know how to touch on you know sports aren't as profitable but at least with football i mean there's so much there's so much money (laughs) like like like, yeah you don't even have to go to third party people that shouldn't be a part of the conversation the first party people the programs themselves should be held accountable for paying their athletes or sharing the profits of their athletes
2: yeah yeah like so one of the okay so we have all of this context Andrew you've provided and and Kaya Sophie um, Colin you've provided all of this context for all the problems that's that's wrong in the current NCAA system and naturally the question like we know nil is not the answer it's gig work it's third parties now are are paying um, and first party still gets to not pay we know that there are no legal rights and maybe the first step might be um, recognizing legal rights we know that this entire system is just a massive system of wage theft um, across the ncaa so my question and and i'd like to close off on this question because it's the natural question is the college sports system is all like the the are all the benefits that we've talked about is this redeemable and what is the pathway to a more just and humane system and i'd like to to start with sophie and kaya on this one if we could
3: that's a huge question. Oh my god! <laughs>
2: Absolutely. <laughs>
3: um,
2: I, I, and, and I'm not expecting we don't. Ha- I don't think we can answer all of these. But like thinking about ways to start moving forward.
3: Yeah, I was gonna say like if I had the answers to this, it would have already been done. So um, <laughs> I don't know. I the optimist in me. Um, I think one of my my gifts as an activist is my eternal optimism and my ability to endure. So I think, you know, the optimist in me really wants to believe that this system is redeemable and really wants to, you know, satisfy the young girl who started playing her sport at five and worked so hard to be a D1 college player and a professional athlete. Like I, I truly do want to believe that it's redeemable, but I, I can't say that it is as it exists now. And I think that that just goes to show like how many fundamental issues that there are to address. It becomes overwhelming. Um, And, you know, I know we're talking about the NCAA in general, but I think our like professional sports system is just as bad now. And I have experienced things throughout my career as an athlete in college and as a pro athlete and even as a youth player that have just really corrupted that idea of this system being redeemable in my head and in my heart. And so I as it exists now, I would say no. And I think you know, one of the most important steps towards you know creating a redeemable system is, I think, righting the wrongs of how we've gotten here. And I think that starts with empowering athletes and educating athletes that there even are problems. I mean, most people aren't even aware that there are. And I think, you know, on the other side of that coin, like, there needs to be people in power who step in and intervene um, because, you know, the NCAA is going to continue exploiting people until they are forbidden from doing so. And so I think, you know, we need legislators and we need people who hold power to sort of step up and stick their necks out in this system and help, help college athletes. Um, I think it's a, a coin, you know, you need college athletes on one hand to start organizing and educating and coming together. But on the other hand, you need people who are creating structural changes from the outside in, um, and intervening. And so, I mean, I know that there are people who are in our United States Congress who are definitely concerned with this issue. Um, but I think, you know, it's going to take a large collective effort to, redeem this system in any way if it is um redeemable at all i think it's it's going to take a bunch of work from a bunch of different stakeholders in this system and i'm i'm not sure it'll ever happen in my lifetime which is saying something cuz i got a lot of years to live on this planet um but i hope i'm i'm still hopeful that it will be yeah. yeah it's it's a it's a
2: big it's a big system you're you're absolutely right Sophie, do you, do you have a, a something on that?
5: Yeah, big boost to everything Kaya said for sure. Um, I think you know my first reaction to this question is that is way above my pay grade, and <laughs> I have th- thought about that question so much, and I don't know. And like I hope to maybe one day work in college athletics, not in college athletics, but adjacent to college athletics, because I think a lot of people are gonna. Be trying to find the answer to that question, and I'd love to be at that table,
4: mm-hmm. but I
5: think I get really scared by that question, and yeah. I think it's probably my experience as a women's rower, um, a sport that, you know, pretty much exists because of Title IX, and my experience at a program at a smaller school that is like much more underfunded, underfunded, that was often mistaken as a club sport when we were fully varsity. Like I am afraid of the future of college athletics selfishly because I'm afraid if I like kick up a storm about it, like the solution will be like, Oh yeah. Well, I don't know. Maybe we should just, trash women's rowing completely. I don't know. I just feel like I'm in a very precarious position and sometimes I wonder like if it weren't for Title 9, like do I have a right to row in college? Like what mm-hmm. is like do colleges in the US have to offer athletics to students? Like and I'm kind of afraid I genuinely think football and basketball will outgrow higher education and maybe become like a minor professional league or something like mm-hmm. I don't think athletics to that level can be connected to higher education, especially as they are now. But like, what does that mean for me? And what does that mean for, you know, swimmers or track and field athletes? You know, the quote unquote non-revenue sports. It's like, do I, I just, I come down to that question. Like, do I have a right to represent IU as a rower? Which I don't know. Those are my thoughts.
2: Yeah, no, no. Very important perspective as well andrew i'd like to get your take on this i I, want to go around the table and get everyone's view on this like huge huge question
6: yeah um you know well i ran cross country so like i have Mm. the same perspective as you sophie in terms of that fear that we'll lose our sport and i think i start from the point of like the inherent value of sport is the capacity to inspire Community and unite Mm -hmm. community. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Kaya, you mentioned like, oh, am I making that five year old girl proud? Like, I think of the same thing. Like, I had these big, scary dreams when I was like 10 to be an Olympian. And committing to that dream was terrifying. And then, you know, committing to the discipline of it was really hard. But I grew into. Um, the person I am today, and in, into a college athlete, which at the time I viewed college athletes as superheroes. And you know, when I was ten, I was like, these are these, they truly felt like superheroes to me. Even though no one knows who best country runners are, um, but you know, to me, college athletes are superheroes in our communities, and that value transcends the revenue a sport brings in. And this is by far the biggest fear that everyone has in this is how do we equitably compensate college athletes and protect sports from getting cut? Yeah. And you know, the part that sucks is universities are already cutting sports. Yeah. They're already the and the only thing that's getting those, those sports back is Title IX lawsuits um were they being legally forced to and now is it a do we have a right to that sport existing I don't know but the, the university has that sport and it exists so they must value it um mm-hmm. and if they don't then we need to stand up collectively and protect our sports and from my experience and conversations with football and basketball players they want the same thing they don't want sports to get cut Um, Just so that they could get the biggest possible paycheck. And, you know, some might, but the the vast majority in my experience don't have that view. And it's the biggest hesitation from them standing up because they're told on a day-to-day basis, don't be selfish for standing up for for that. Um, Or don't ask to get paid because you'll be selfish. Look at what, look at how much you get versus all, you know, cross-country runners. And the, is the system redeemable? The current system not a chance um but if we change it and we give athletes rights then we can rebuild a new system that lasts even longer than this one has and is a fruitful empowering positive experience rather than something that is traumatizing um you know overwhelming, exhausting. Uh, mm-hmm. it's it needs to change, but you know, the I think that the NCAA as a plantation is an irredeemable mm-hmm. reality of college sports. But we can't change that if we don't have hope for a vision of a future that is better where we have unity amongst sports and our sports are protected and we're able to safely compete at the highest level and get the educations we want and inspire our communities to achieve their dreams. And so I, I, I view college sports across the board as a very, very beautiful, powerful force. But um, the only way that we're going to create the vision of college sports that is best for all of us is for all of us to come together and force it to happen because the nightmare that we currently exist in is a result of the existing power brokers yeah. making decisions about how that system ought to exist. And it does so in a way that it's a tax it's a racist tax evasion scheme that yeah. leads to mass abuse and academic fraud. Um, so. Yeah, I kind of said a lot of things. I said, I I suppose we can have both. Like, I don't think that, I don't think that, I think there's a way for us to be employed um, and protected where sports aren't cut. Um, Because the schools already don't care. They're going to cut us any chance they get.
2: And and Colin is what's the sort of pathway like? Is college sport redeemable, and and what's the pathway to a more just and humane system?
4: Well, I mean, the you know I'm all for revolution, personally. <laughs> I'm all for that, but trying to be take a realistic st- like look at things. Um, I I I don't think it's obviously not going away anytime soon. Uh, mm-hmm. Stay tuned for the the effects of climate change on sport can't wait for the wet bulb effect to take take place in these states especially um with lower budget programs or programs that are you know unwilling to get better or have you know use their resources um Mm -hmm. to provide safe environments for their athletes um here in the future uh created uh, it's crazy to think about um what bubble Fake, for those of you who don't know it's when the human body literally cannot cool itself um and you will basically die <laughs> if left out um outside um yeah. but uh in terms of like steps to take um i i know this kind of blew my mind and i don't know how relevant it is now but um the the late uh david williams professor david williams he was the athletic director at vanderbilt university great man he was a law professor too um he, he straight up said to me i know my freshman year i remember he was like at, at the very least the ncaa can set up accounts and i, ca- I can't remember all what he said specifically so now it's gonna be kind of my words <laughs> um but basically setting up savings accounts for college athletes, like it's totally within the realm of possibility for the NCAA and you know, cash profit sharing if you're saying, hey, don't give these young kids, uh, eighteen year olds, um, in in a large part of the time, twenty five percent of the time about yeah. um a large amount of money because they won't know what to do with it. It'll crud them. Well nothing's stopping you from putting away for 30 year old them from getting paid, you know. Uh, athletes who are only a part of a program for a year still contributed to that program for a year, so they should at least get a year's worth of you know of something out. Because I think at the end of the day, we're talking about resources, we're talking about power. And right now, for a, for a good amount of athletes, what gives these coaches and these administrations so much power over them is that they're they're the master. They're they're who they're serving. Yeah, they're in school and everything, but. You know that's an opportunity that isn't something they're actually being given. They have the opportunity to go sit in the classroom. They aren't going to be given a degree. Um, yeah. And I think introducing in you know money that's that's because that's the master that administrations and coaches are serving. They're they're working for a paycheck. Yeah. That's why they're showing up, and you're showing up because of the pressure for them and you know the sport. Um, because I know a lot of lot of um, football players. One of the things that coaches ask you um, doesn't matter about your grades or anything like that they don't have to worry about that the, the one thing they can ask you is do you want to be do you want to play in the nfl and you know the the correct answer to that is yes yes you do because why else are you out here and if that answer is yes then you'll be willing to do whatever the coaches or the administ- the academic or sorry athletic staff they will get you there so yeah. i i think i think a shift in power dynamics being you know number one being money uh yeah is is kind of the answer at least for you know sports that i was i was closer
6: to yeah well i i actually uh, can yeah. i chip in here yeah. i yeah, absolutely I, go ahead i i think the most realistic path forward mm-hmm. and the most powerful thing every athlete could do right now is to authentically share their story and own their voice with their social media it has been so inspiring for me to see all the athletes who come forward and share their mental health stories or share their stories in any capacity um with their world and and owning their their voice and their platform that is how we can begin to collectively have this conversation about um our safety of our health. Um, and hopefully also inspire others to share their stories as well and um, then have these conversations. Like we need to get organized and have conversations about what we need to change and what needs to change immediately versus what needs to change in five years, um, what negative consequences we want to avoid. Um, but I think sharing your story is the most powerful thing any athlete or any person could do right now.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I, I I think that there's there's so much that's ongoing in this in this space, and it's part of a broader labor movement. Um, thinking about Starbucks employees and solidarity out to those folks, and Amazon um, employees and precarious um, gig workers, uh, and and just the 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 broad labor movement as a whole that actually starts with, to Andrew's point, that starts with a lot of these, um. A lot of people on the inside raising their voices and telling their stories and inspiring others. So so I, I, I do think, and it's been amazing to listen to all of your stories and your perspectives. And to be honest, we could be here for like eight hours and I could listen to, we, we could interview each one of you for several hours because it's been so generative and, and important for us but we've already gone over the time that i i promise that we would be out and, and i'm very cognizant of the of your labor your time so i just want to close by thanking each and every one of you sophie kaya andrew colin thank you for sharing your stories um and being part of that broader labor movement that broader movement of resistance to a system that is exploitative in so many different uh, areas of, of the global capitalist ca- capitalist system. So Sophie, Andrew, Kaya, Colin, thank you so much for coming on uh, the End of Spore podcast to share your story.
3: Thanks for having us. This is awesome. Thank, thank
6: you. So Appreciate y'all.